0: Do I, do I refer to you as Professor Hill or just Sarah here?
1: You can just refer to me as I mean, You can introduce me as Professor, but it's you can t- just call me Sarah.
0: No, but well, your professorship and your, your doctorate, which was closer than I thought it was. You are an academic at the great St. Peter's College in Oxford, one of the good ones. Um, <laughs> I, I sat for university college, palmed off to Exeter, and then I realised Oxford was like boarding school. So I went up to Edinburgh where I met Simon Frith, whom you may know. Oh.
1: Yeah, I know know Simon, yes.
0: Yeah, because without him there would be no sociology in rock as an academic discipline.
1: I think that's very true. Simon has, has really paved the way for so many people. And I think anybody that you talk to in my line of work would point to his book, Performing Rights, as the moment that they realized what they wanted to do.
0: Mm-hmm. Because it was a oh, yeah. new discipline, because you had folk and ethnomusicology in the 70s, but rock music was a baby discipline. It would be like a, making someone a professor of grime studies today. And I'm sure there is a professor of grime studies. Is there one at Oxford? Oxford? There isn't, um, but uh, my colleague Jason Stanyak is a scholar of hip hop yeah.
1: uh, and sociology. So, you know, I think you're right about the sociology of rock thing. I mean, that just didn't exist before. But it's also true that for a long time, nobody really knew where popular music studies existed. In terms of discipline. So, you know, musicologists tried to write about rock and tried to write about popular music in the 60s and the 70s. And they were trying to use tools that were really, I don't want to say not fit for purpose, but they didn't quite know how to study popular music without making this statement that this is worth studying. Do you know what I mean? So, the thing about Simon Frith that was so um, significant and important is, is because he's kind of coming through the sociology, cultural studies wing of things, but he's also a rock critic. He writes in a very direct and accessible and meaningful way about what popular music means to the listener, which is something that maybe didn't really come through in some of the early musicological stuff.
0: Mm -hmm. And also, my favourite fact about Simon Frith, he's a super fan of The Archers. Not The Archies, The Archers. He actually (laughs) writes episodes of... The arches. He never misses it. I I found that absolutely fascinating. But he he taught me on uh, music in social context. So by the time we got to the 2000s, I was able to uh, have an 11-week course where I learned that music is... uh, Actually, I'll ask you, what did John Blacking say about what music was? Well,
1: how musical is man? Yes, yes. (laughs) Oh, I don't know Well, you're, you're putting me on the spot. What
0: did you say he say? I learned this in the first lecture. He said that music is humanly organized sound, but that definition oh. was changed to become socially organized sound. So, yes, music is sound, but it's also for a group of people to dance or stroke their chins. I imagine there'll be a lot of chin stroking uh, to accompany the Oxford Handbook of Progressive Rock
1: the cover no, could yeah. just be
0: you stroking your chin
1: it could be i don't think um putting a woman on the cover of the handbook of progressive rock is really the the right signal <laughs> it would
0: well no it would be it would be <laughs> thumbing well that we'll get to that we'll get to gender politics um but before we do anything else there's this book that uh, you, you sent me a pdf of and i hope to get it it is an academic book. Um, which means it's, it'll be in a library near you because it is One Hit Wonders, an oblique history of popular music that you've edited. And uh, we'll talk about that today because that's principally why you're here. And thank you for answering my signal to chat about it. But it's nice in the music library to have an academic, someone who can use discourse and talk about performative itty and all these academic words because music is an academic subject. For you, is it primarily about feeling first? You 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 feel it in your toes rather than think with it in your head first of all.
1: Well, I guess there's a song in there somewhere. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's a really interesting question. It's an interesting way to think about think about a person's relationship to music. I mean, I I grew up, you know, as a musician. So I I started learning piano at four and oboe at eight. I studied classical musicology, and you know, at graduate, so I studied music as an undergraduate, and musicology as a graduate student. So I don't really know what you know what my original relationship with music is, because it's something that's just always been in my life. Like I learned how to read music before I learned how to read mm. words, probably. So I, it's just the, the the thing that's always been there for me, and the thing that I've always been as a musician. So, but it is true also that the music that I played as a pianist and as an oboist in an orchestra and so on, stuff that I sang in choirs, is not necessarily the stuff that I listened to. It wasn't like a, you know, some dirty secret that <laughs> the musicians in youth orchestras listen to pop music, but it, it is true that most of my conversations with my friends at the youth orchestra and, you know, in orchestras and school and stuff, had to do with what we were listening to or you know, who we were going to see at, in concert that weekend or, you know, what records we just bought. So it's the same sort of conversations that everybody has, you know, regardless of, of where you sit on the classical to pop spectrum. Yeah. So I don't, for me, I mean, it was as, you know, emotional and personal as it was just kind of practical, like, and, you know, every day. So I, I find it really hard to, to kind of to find a pigeonhole for myself.
0: Because you know the term busman's holiday, which I don't think is in use in America, but it's a, if if you drive a bus and you go on holiday, you have to drive somewhere. But um, if you are a pop music academic and you're putting yes. on like I don't know Radio One or Magic or Radio Two or Classic Rock or some form of Sirius XM station, it's a busman's holiday. So you never switch off, and I find this because I I listen to lots of country music, and um, I try and just turn my critical faculties up, but I find that I can't because I'm also tuned in in case it fit, fits into my own songwriting. Do you still perform?
1: Um, I don't. Well, I don't, just for myself. I yeah. mean, it, when I when I studied musicology, started studying musicology more seriously, I didn't have time to be a musician, so that's the thing I'm trying to catch up with again. I mean, I've always played the piano, just you know, as a pastime, but uh, just started playing the oboe again after. Decades away from it and it is agony, let me tell you. Um, the thing about Bustman's Holiday, though, I re- I do agree with that, but I also think it's just the way of madness. <laughs> like, yes. If I couldn't switch off, <laughs> as it happens, I was in the co op, the local cooperative food store uh, here in Cardiff uh, with my younger daughter, who's 13. And when we left, you know, we were there for, I don't know, 10 minutes or however long it took us to buy crisps and milk and when he left my daughter said so i i spotted one direction gwen stefani and two other people and she's like so so what did you think of the of the playlist I was like i was not even aware of it like i just shut off my ears entirely like i can't there's sometimes i can't avoid it but other times i just like blank it out and i, I don't know how i do that
0: funnily like, enough <laughs> one of the lectures that Simon Frith gave us was about Muzak and piped music, yeah. and the, I know he's written about this extensively, but just the fact that, uh, I think it was David Bowie called it a tap, Jarvis Cocker used the term scented candle in the corner of the room, yeah. I've never forgotten yeah. it, and Jarvis has got a That's book out like yeah. uh, this month uh, which is great, uh, but yeah, music is all around us, I've, I actually sat in silence for about a minute last night and I went, oh, it's good not to have music on it's good to just be that. Maybe I block my own thoughts out with music, but that's not what you're here to discuss. Uh, I'll need to seek some help from that. Um, but yes, thirteen-year-old daughter. So is she into the Billie Eilishes, the the Olivia Rodrigo's? Is she looking forward? To, oh no. Well, She's got the Harry Styles album. Is she listening to Harry's album this week?
1: Well, my older daughter actually listens to Harry Styles. My younger daughter is kind of finding her her taste a little bit. So she yeah, definitely likes Billie Eilish, but also is a big fan of Childish Gambino. Mm -hmm. She listens to... I don't think she's really quite pinned down a genre yet, and that's totally... Like fine by me. I mean, I don't think it's it's right just to, to pigeonhole yourself at the age of thirteen. Um, so she likes to. She she's trying to sort of catch up on classic albums. So she's she wants to get kind of, you know, um, sit down and listen to things that she thinks are you know important in some way. So it's, it's it's something that my older girl and I do a lot. Is just kind of sit down and put on an album and just listen to it good. a little bit more. Perfectly yeah, just have a. Um, so yeah, I mean, if it means that my kids grow up with a healthy appreciation for Pink Floyd and King Crimson then then great. Oof. But I'm not gonna add them Earth Wind and Fire or you know, Wilco. We'll so but it's, it's just whatever whatever they want to listen to is fine. Yeah, and they do yeah. have to listen to a lot of stuff that I that I that I write about, stuff that I that I do in my um teaching, but I don't think that's a bad thing.
0: Pop music now, which is if rock and roll is a pensionable age, it is now moving into the kind of realm that orchestras play Tchaikovsky and Mahler and Mozart. So if you're if you're a band looking to pack out a venue as an alternative to all these holograms, which is would be a fascinating academic study this weekend at Nebworth or this weekend, the Jubilee weekend, Liam Gallagher is going to play Wonderwall and other songs that is now verging on classic rock. Smells Like Teen Spirit, classic rock, Arctic Monkeys, yeah. uh, whose album hasn't been off the charts for years. Uh, we're starting to have a canon of popular music. And I asked, uh, I think I may have asked Michael Hand this, who sets the canon of popular music? Is it you?
1: <laughs> but scholars. Yeah. Oh, I should hope not. I should really should hope not. Um that's that's a really good question. I mean, it seems to be much more a thing about like music critics and journalists tend to tend to do the you know hundred greatest songs of the you
0: know you love a list
1: you know kind of yeah the the lists they're they're absolutely pointless, but they do also so it's you know critically acclaimed or best selling or you know, most influential. I mean, how you measure most influential is something that I don't think anybody can actually do. But a lot of those lists also turn out to be anti-canonic. So, sure, we all understand that, you know, Sergeant Pepper's only has Band and and pet sounds and okay Computer, all these, all these yeah. albums rumors these are all the albums that people ought to know you know these are the albums that my kids are listening to because they feel like they're the most important albums in the world but so so a lot of these lists are yeah i mean if you don't have never mind the bollocks then you should but have you heard you know this ornette coleman you know <laughs> sort of there's late, a reason why
0: you haven't heard ornette uh, coleman
1: yeah, there was one on, oh, was it on Pitchfork or some place? the 100 Greatest Albums of the 80s. And then, so the 80s are my era, right? I'm that old. I, I looked at this list, and I did not recognize two-thirds of the albums. And um, uh, one of the, sort of a music writer in the States said, you know, Ann Powers yes. wrote, or no, not Ann Powers, somebody else wrote, you know, I can't believe that, you know, so this is just another exercise in, you know, I'm not, I'm just going to deny that the human league ever existed, or you know, <laughs> yeah. where's the where's the mode, where's yours? It's like all the the, the albums that people were actually buying and listening to and loving, just don't show up because they're too popular. So it's a little bit of the the flexing the, you know, I don't listen to top forty radio muscle or. You know, I'm going to be more alternative than you, or, you know... <laughs> How, yeah, I but that is, my, that is so dog.
0: unhelpful. There's a reason Don't You Want Me got to number one, and that is because if you play it in it's 50 years' song. time, it'll still it's sound great, great,
1: great. You know, just the thought of that song brings up so many very, very vivid memories for me. I, I, I know, it's, it's unbelievable. I mean, but was that the most, you know, one of the most influential albums? I don't know. I mean, you know, who can say if... Human League's Dare was more influential than Heaven 17's Penthouse and Pavement or Depeche Mode's Some Great Reward, you know, whatever the, the albums were that that were out of around the same time. My personal canon of the 80s doesn't necessarily match onto any other person's canon of the greatest albums. In-
0: you can't, it would be boring if yeah. everyone liked the same music all the time. Music is also fashion. It's something that I've discovered because I used to... This is my formative years of music. I would have a double period on Friday. I'd have a double free period and I would take the Guardian film and music supplement from the library, bring it back to the common room and read John Harris, Paul Morley, Laura Barton, Alexis Petrovic's reviews. Um, And it was so brilliant for teaching me how to listen critically to music as journalism. Nowadays... Music journalism seems to be about two things one, fashion, and two, intersectionality. And I, I don't, I'm sure you've been asked this at dinner parties so often that I don't really want to ask you this. But why is music journalism more about fashion and gender politics? Is it because a music journalist doesn't know what a semi quaver is?
1: Um, I don't think that's it so much. I mean, if, well, I'm sure if you look back on journalism from the 70s, you know, Charles Charmari, you know, Bill Carson, any, any, yeah, Banks, anybody. Yeah. It's going to be as much about the culture around the music as the music itself. So much of the journalism that helps to create the sense of a culture is going to deal with more than than music. It's going to deal with all the stuff that that goes around it. The stuff around gender politics. I mean, that's you absolutely have to acknowledge that the that the music industry is is male dominated. So um, anything that Pushes against the kind of established norms of the music industry is, I think, a healthy thing and a good thing. So, you know, Billie Eilish covering herself up from head to toe until she turned eighteen is a a pretty, a pretty great message. You know, Harry Styles wearing nail polish and dresses—I don't really care. Does it make? Does it change his music? Not to me, but it does to a lot of younger people who's, you know, who are the target demographic. So. You know, it's it's kind of finding the things that will speak to the audiences and help them to kinda of understand their place in the world. I'm um, finding a finding a critical voice that you can trust is a really, really important thing. I don't know if it would be as possible these days because there's so many different ways to find your information. So it's not about broadsheets. It's not about music magazines. It's about blogs and podcasts and you know, online stuff. So who do you trust and who's, you know, who, who do you trust to tell you, to tell you what the music actually stands for or means? So.
0: Yes, thank you very much for that. Uh, I've just coined the term popular academics, which is, it's, uh, Mary Beard is a popular academic. Um, but I listen to Chris Malamphy. His Hit Parade podcast is unbelievably well-researched. Grady Smith, who is a country journalist who comes from the entertainment journalism world but knows his music stuff. There's a pianist called David Bennett who explains music theory. Uh, and there's a guy called Tom Brien. Do you read Tom's pieces? They, they would feel up your street. He's doing the number ones chronologically, and he's up to 1998 in wow. the Billboard chart.
1: I haven't I haven't come across that. I mean, frankly, there is so much stuff out there. I kind of don't even know where to look. It's it's interesting though to take that kind of approach because it does give you a sense of I hate the term granular detail, but it does give you the sense of how how tastes kind of slowly change and, you know, where the little blips are along yeah. the way. And I find that really fascinating. And you know, one of the things I, I know I'm not gonna sort of preempt the conversation here, but but i um, sort of thinking toward one hit wonders. The difference that I wanted to establish was between a one hit wonder and a novelty hit. So, um, I can remember again, when I was uh, an undergraduate, I was, I spent a year abroad at the university of York. One of the songs that I, I remember buying as a single, it was a, it was on the top 10. It was on top of the pops just before I left. Um, there's a song called "Star Trekken." Now I don't know why in the world a song called "Star Trekken," like about Star Trek, was <laughs> actually in. The Hit Parade in 1987, but it was—it's just like why why that song and why then? I I can't I don't think that it was tied into anything. No, it was 87.
0: So. Star Trek was nowhere. It was kitsch. It was kind. <laughs> it would be like talking about Crazy Frog now. Maybe maybe Shatner was in public consciousness at the time. Leonard Nimoy was doing other things. But yeah, that that song then, and it tied in with a group of novelty songs. Uh, the KLF had a number one hit performed by a car. Yeah, that they. <laughs> <laughs> which, which is not which, which was actually a cross between um, the Doctor Who theme and Gary Glitter Rock and Roll Part Two, and uh, well, everyone forgets Gary Glitter was the act of 1973. He had three number ones, but we can't talk about him anymore. He's a non-person. No. So the, one of the one-hit wonders that I I talked.
1: For for one of the chapters that I did, I talked to Ben Palmer's, who was the the producer of Blue Swedes' "Hooked on a Feeling" from nineteen seventy four. Thank you. Was it really
0: same year as Abba? Yeah. Same year as Abba Waterloo. Yeah.
1: Uh "Hooked on a Feeling" had already been a hit for two other bands. So uh, one of the one of the hits that that Blue Swede's version is based on was recorded by, was performed by Jonathan King. So Bengt Palmers' story about Hooked on a Feeling was seeing Jonathan King perform it on top of the Pops when he just happened to be in London for something uh, in 1973. And, you know, we don't talk about Jonathan King either, but you can't dis- you can't disentangle him from the story of the song, you know, because he does kind of, Show up again in you know sort of rights disputes and things. So it's it's like even these people. you I mean even people like Gary Glitter. Gary Glitter's estate are still going to sort of find their way back into into the business if it means you know grabbing a little bit more money, um, even if we don't talk about it.
0: Yeah. Uh, well, the most um, mind-numbing statistic um, fact about popular music is that a very very evil sex offender invented the concept of the disc jockey. And you cannot write Jimmy Savile out of the history of popular music. He he was the first one to bring twin turntables to a discotheque. And unfortunately uh, he deserves, well, that's about the only thing he deserves praise for. Jonathan King came up with the name of 10 CC. It's his idea. Um, Look up, look, look that up. But yes, uh, the blue Swede, uh, the conversation you had with Benk Palmers is fantastic. Not just because I didn't know, that the Uga Chaka Uga Uga came from. It was kind of a reggae pastiche or a Native American pastiche, which, again, wouldn't fly today, much like Hot Child in the City just wouldn't get out of the writer's room today. Oh, or if yeah, it would, it would, be, it would be there to cause controversy. But The book is great. Thank you for putting it together. It's like a symposium to a one-hit wonder. It's kind of academic... There's little academic jargon In this book, it's a very accessible, sorry to use that word. I I know accessible is one of those buzzwords that academics don't like.
1: But that was the intention. I mean, who needs to read about, you know, da-da-da or Mickey or something, uh, you know, and hear about... Aeolian cadences and you know modality you just don't that's not what the song is that's not what the song means it's all the stuff around it all the contributors are really clear you know these are just going to be short sharp chapters you know no more than three thousand words so you know the length of an undergraduate essay and just you know on whatever aspect of the songs they found interesting or that they wanted to think about um and it's not just academics writing the chapters either so they're you know they're music writers and journalists and musicians writing them as well. And some of them, you know, some of the chapters really went in directions I was not expecting. So like the Archies, for example, does get kind of out there in terms of interpretation, but I think that's one of the things that's so brilliant about it. I think it's a, you would never listen to Sugar Sugar and think about Darwin, but, but wow, John yes. Stewart, who wrote the chapter, is actually giving you the opportunity to do just that. So I think it's I think it's brilliant that way. Some are just very you know straightforward. You know this is what happened in the year that the song was released. This is what it means. Um, this is why it was popular. This is what happened afterward. You know, very straightforward story about the song. Others have a much deeper kind of resonance. Like you mentioned, Hot Child in the City. It's really, it's. I remember that song so well, and not being in any way bothered by it when I was you know twelve or something listening to it. Um, and it's just being reminded of it at the age that I am now is just it's so unsettling. And again, Richard Parfitt did a really, a really good and very uncompromising analysis of it in terms of Jimmy Savile, Jimmy Saville's sort of predatory, uh, era, a really difficult. What, what's the word I'm looking for? I mean, I'm trying to find pedophilic. a way to say it that
0: it's pedophilic. Well, yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, but there's so many other, Seedyness. so many other aspects of popular culture yeah. that were. Fixated on you know pre you know prepubescent adolescent young girls. It's just it's just revolting. But as a young girl at the time that that song was released, it didn't even occur to me that it was you know dangerous or or that that I was you know being targeted in some ways. Like that, it's it, it, just looking at it from this distance has been a really interesting kind of reminder of what it was like growing up as a as a girl in the seventies. So so again to just to go back to that point that you made earlier about gender politics and, and so on. If there had been more women DJs and more women yeah, critics and more women record execs, that kind of stuff wouldn't have happened mm-hmm. or it would not have been as easy to happen. Yeah. So so yeah. So that, that would be my point about that.
0: I'm well I'm fascinated by your research in women rock critics. It's kind of is it Barbara Carone? Barbara yes. Uh, and and the you, women's magazines in the nineteen seventies. I think that'll be a great, great. Will it be a paper or a book? That one.
1: Well, there I've I've presented some sort of longer lectures about around it, and it's the stuff that I've done so far has really focused on Annie Nightingale. Yes. Um, so she was obviously the first woman DJ on Radio One. Um, she hosted the Old Grey Whistle Test for a little while, and for a short period in the seventies, had a column in Cosmopolitan magazine. So, oh. I'm sort of thinking about um, the. I, I was looking specifically at, at Cosmo and thinking about the music that was that was reviewed, and how the messages of you know female empowerment and second wave feminism kind of filtered through, if they did, and you know. <laughs> Sort of short answer is they didn't really. Mm. So um, it's been a really a really interesting first couple of steps into a larger project. It probably, it probably will be a book at some point. I just haven't had the chance to focus on getting that structured. So
0: Which will mean Soon it'll be on a shelf with Annie Nightingale's memoir that is in the Watford Library just over there. I haven't read it yet because probably I'm just, <laughs> just petrified. You know
1: of... She has now three memoirs. So Annie Nightingale has already published two memoirs. So this is her third. Well, there's a, there's <laughs> an audience so for
0: it, and and I was I used to I used to listen to Janice Long and who passed away very recently. You may know Jan because you were in Wales for a bit, and she is a she was on yeah. Radio Wales.
1: Yeah, yeah. The thing about um, Annie Nightingale, though, is that she doesn't mention Cosmo in any of her books.
0: That was my next so, question. Yes, she, it didn't, she really so.
1: doesn't. Yeah, I've been I've been thinking I should try to go down and, and interview her, but um, it's sort of hard when when you want to talk to somebody who's already put a lot of their life on paper or has already talked a lot about, about their career, it's like, what, what else are you going to get? Like, how do you, how do you find a way into the information that hasn't been accessed yet? you know?
0: I bet Annie yeah. Nightingale would have played Plastique Bertrand, Sa Plane Pour Moi, which I heard because it was on Pick of the Pops this weekend, and I try my French is okay. My French is like your Welsh, I think.
1: In the... My Welsh is, is fluent. So. Ah,
0: so well, mine's, mine's near. <laughs> my, my dad's um, new wife, latest wife, is French. And their kids are gonna—he's got three under threes—and their kids are gonna grow up bilingual. So my French is gonna have to improve yeah. very quickly. But Plain pour moi," yeah. which is nonsense, but with bits of sense in between. And the essay writer Patrick, who calls it Eurotrash, uh, calls <laughs> calls a one-hit wonder a ball and chain and a hot air balloon. And I note that "Tub Thumping" by Chumbawamba is in the book. That is English trash. That's the English attempt at Eurotrash because it's complete nonsense.
1: Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, the the the, the Patrick McGuinness's chapter on "Samba is so great because he's he he talks about it from the position of somebody who's both Belgian and English, <laughs> sort of remembering the Belgianness of the song from his childhood in Belgium, but also being a student in England and having to explain <laughs> to all his English friends what the song meant. And, you know, there's a whole you know, like a really really interesting story behind it. Chambawamba also is a really interesting case study because you know they they they're not top 40 material like why in the world <laughs> would an anarchist collective <laughs> want to make a top 10 hit so so what do they do with this kind of with this this fame and this acclaim that they that they earn from this song um it's a really interesting story about politics in england in a very particular time so mm. That's a that's a really, a really great story. And to be fair, I mean, Tug Thumping came out just around the time that I moved to Wales uh, from California. So it's, it kind of resonates with, for me, with me, uh, with that sort of time that I, that I was first here. And sort of not really understanding what it meant, or it just seemed to me like a, like a drinking anthem. It was a song, you know, Bindaloo, that thing. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> the same kind of thing. Which was written by it's... Damien
0: Hurst and Keith Allen. Yeah. very much non-musical.
1: So it's just, you know, drunk people, drunk guys walking down the street singing at the top of their lungs. It's the same the same moment for me. So I really I really enjoyed reading Matt Grimes' article, uh, chapter on Tubton, because it sort of made more sense of the political situation that it maybe wasn't quite tuned into yet.
0: What I love about the selections which have been made is that most of them are either nonsense or sing-alongs. For instance, Louis Louie. Nonsense. 99 red balloons, political meaning, but ultimately it's a, it's a load of kind of abstract concepts in a song. Uh, and then you've got and so on. And at the same yeah. time, you've got this kind of knowing nonsense, like you get what you give, which is one of the great pop songs and how yeah. bizarre by OMC. A great pop song. And Chin and Chapman wrote Mickey, that Tony Basil turned into a cheerleader song. And, and I commend your attempt to raise the status of One Hit Wonder Beyond Novelty. Um, but my theory is that a number one hit is never about the music or the lyrics. In, an, in a visual age, it's about the visual. So a lot of these songs are about the visual, uh, one of which is somebody that I used to know, which was just altogether yeah. weird. <laughs>
1: It's a really interesting song, isn't it? You know, I have to say, this is—it's a song that probably wouldn't have worked if it hadn't been for the video. Like, it—if—but—but but then again, you know, how how do you determine what's gonna what's gonna take off? Like, you know, Gangnam Style took off because of the video as much as because of the song. Oh yeah. So, in a in a era that we're in now, where music is released in a very particular way that does not look like the way music used to be released in the seventies and the eighties. It is about accessing the video and the image to this that goes along with the song. You know, you'd say the same thing about Mickey. You know, everybody knew the video for Mickey. Most of us had seen um, the video for How Bizarre. I remember seeing the video for yep, How Bizarre. Driving I mean, the car. Yep. It, yeah, but for that song particularly, like I was, I was telling somebody else, it never occurred to me that OMC were from New Zealand at the time that the song came out because I remember seeing seeing this the, the video and this is a time that i lived in california still and sort of beachy looking area i just kind of read it as southern california Yeah, like,
0: mariachi like, trumpets yeah you assume yeah
1: yeah and also be you know because it's something that just sort of looked like you know hispanic um hispanic usa uh-huh. so, so getting challenged by you know by jeff Stahl, who wrote the chapter about my recollection of that song and what I understood that song to mean was actually, you know, really important. Um, so you can get a really false impression of a song based on the video. I don't think that you would do that with um, somebody that I used to know, though, because it's all about the weirdness. <laughs> so yeah. You know, you're just forced to, to – not forced to look at these people, but the – there's this uncompromising,
0: compelling style
1: yeah. video. Yeah, so you're just, you just—it's just—it's this, this real intimate kind of look at these two people. That, of course, is going to be a little bit unsettling and weird, and it's going to make the song more, more interesting that way. If it had been, you know, one of the old style, here we are pretending, you know, on stage pretending to be playing a concert kind of lip-syncing thing, lip-syncing videos like every other song in the '80s and '90s. Um, it it might not have had the same sort of um, traction because it wouldn't have meant anything. But the video seems to have this sort of narrative that pulls you in.
0: And we still remember it. One Hit Wonders, an oblique history of popular music edited by Professor Sarah Hill is out on Bloomsbury Academic. It is a little souvenir of a terrible year, as you write in the introduction. (laughs) And you dedicate your book to two ladies, Dorothy and Martha, who were the human jukeboxes. Yeah. So just before we go, are these family members?
1: Yes. Yeah, so uh, Dorothy Roberts was my grandmother. She played um, piano and organ for silent movies and could play any song um, that you asked. She had an encyclopedic knowledge of all popular music in the first half of the 20th century. Martha Hill was my mother. Who was not? Uh, who did not play in silent movies? But she was the greatest cocktail pianist you would ever know. She would, she could just make you know play medleys that just songs that sort of drifted into her head. She could play anything by ear. She could play, you know, anything just as as you're going along, she would just um she was an incredible, incredible she had an incredible ear for music. Did not teach me how to play by ear. She wanted me only to play by music by, you know, notated music. So I'm looking back on these two women who had this incredible access to, you know, the entire history of popular music. You know, and they, they reveled in sharing it, but it was a very much a closed a sort of a, a closed world to me in some ways. So I just I thought they would, you know,
0: they were sort of on my mind as I was putting this together. Oh, Yeah, it's fantastic. And then in one word, are you a poptimist or are you a rockist?
1: <clears throat> oh, pass. <laughs>
0: <laughs> is the right answer. And if you want to know more, Carl Wilson's brilliant book, uh, Let's Talk About Love, about taste in popular music, from the 33 and a Third series, is an essential book that takes the academic uh, out of the classroom and into, uh, well popular discourse and i hope to read a lot more of your work sarah thank you very much for writing this book